Welcome, I am your host, and this is the Unanswered Questions Podcast. What makes this case positively spooky is that there were a lot of strange deaths that were linked to the Innslaw case and those who were investigating it. Some of these investigators were following some of the same leads that Danny himself was following. Tonight, new developments in a year-long News Channel 3 investigation. The Riverside County Sheriff's Department is looking into possible connections between a triple murder in 1981 and a murder-suicide in 2005 that claimed six lives. It's a story you will only see right here on News Channel 3. And our own Nathan Baca joins us with the very latest on this investigation. Tamara Libby, this is the most chilling email that we've ever seen written by a detective. This murder investigation is so terrifying to experienced investigators. They are fearful for their lives and their families. When this detective writes he can't look his wife in the eyes and risk his family's lives, you know it's a big case. Nicaraguan arms deals, stolen computer databases, weapons testing on local Cabazon Indian land, and a lawsuit alleging conspiracy from the highest federal officials for the past 30 years. All of these are now being investigated by the Riverside County Cold Case Division. Three people were murdered execution style in this Rancho Mirage home in July 1981. There were never any arrests. The victims included Cabazon Indian Vice Chairman Fred Alvarez. Family members say he was going to blow the whistle on a business partnership between defense contractor Wackenhut Services and the Cabazon Indians to build machine guns and biological weapons for Central American countries. News Channel 3 recently obtained an email written by Riverside County Sheriff's Detective. We are not revealing their name to protect their identity. The email states the cold case division reopened the Alvarez triple murder several months ago. Bad things seem to happen to those who get too close to uncovering Cabazon Arms and its dealings with the federal government. Three Rancho Mirage murders in 1981. A Riverside County District Attorney investigator left the office in the early 1980s after threats on his life. Journalist Danny Casalero investigated what he called the octopus and was found dead in his hotel room in 1991. His reporter notes disappeared. The book on the conspiracy he was to name Indio was never finished. And the detective is investigating whether DA investigator David McGowan and his family of five were murdered in 2005 after McGowan looked into the case. The detective writes he doesn't want to continue on the case based on the number of people who have met an untimely demise while doing so. But the detective is continuing the case. News Channel 3 learned former computer programmer Michael Riconosciuto was recently questioned. Documents show a secret government computer spy program named Promise was modified on tribal land in India. Promise is linked to a major spy scandal that has stretched for years. With all of these national security implications, the detective states he feels like Alice in Wonderland going down the rabbit hole, and he no longer has a complete grasp on the real world. The stakes are high, the secrets are growing, and the suspicious deaths remain unanswered. Even the detective desperately asks... Am I just another lamb to the slaughter? The email was leaked to us and confirmed by multiple sources inside the investigation. The detective who wrote the email has not responded to additional requests for information. Sources within the Riverside County Sheriff's Department tells us that there is major pressure for the cold case division to drop this case. Now, if you have missed any part of this 32-part exclusive investigation more than one year in the making, log on to our website at KESQ.com. On the right-hand side, click on Special Reports and then the icon that says Inside the DA's Office and DHS Police. So. 
We are continuing our investigation. We're going to hope for uh, some more coming up very soon. Nathan, how is the McGowan family responding to these findings in this investigation? I've talked to them, and they are certainly puzzled about what has uh, been going on, but uh, they have been in talks with uh, members of the FBI. Uh, there are a lot of questions that are being asked at this point, and uh, the FBI has not officially reopened this case, but uh, sources inside uh, are saying... The mysterious deaths include Alan Standorf. So Alan David Standorf was a former civilian employee of Vint Hill Farm Station working on NSA signals intelligence. Standorf's job was to oversee security measures at Vint Hill, which was described by police sources as a listening post that would monitor radio communications from around the world. In the beginning of 1991, Casalero was investigating the Inslaw case almost frantically. One of his contacts, supplied by Recon Asciutto, was Alan Standorf, who worked at the secret military electronic listening post at Vint Hill Farm near Manassas, Virginia. Standorf supplied Casalero with classified information, and in order to quickly return the materials to avoid detection, Casalero set up high-speed commercial duplicating and collating equipment in room 900 at the nearby Hilton Hotel. Standoff was found dead at a Washington, D.C. metropolitan airport in his car in January of 1991. Standoff's body with no visible wounds was found the night of Jan 3rd under clothing and luggage on the back floor of his small car. Standoff's car had been on a short-term parking lot at a metropolitan Washington National Airport since Jan 3rd, said David Hess, spokesperson for the Metropolitan Washington Airport Police. Standoff's estimated death was the 3rd of January 1991, and the cause of death was ruled as blunt force trauma to the back of the head. Dr. Stephen Sheehy of the Medical Examiner's Office in Northern Virginia confirmed information the family was given that Standoff died of blunt force blow to the back of the head around January 3rd. Standoff was alleged to have leaked declassified NSA documents relating to the Promise Intelligence software similar to PRISM to investigative journalist Danny Casalero. It got a lot weirder because after Danny's death when Art Weinfeld accompanied Casalero's sister Mary Allen and son Trey to the Martinsburg police station to recover Danny's car, they ran into detectives who identified themselves as working for the National Airport Authority in DC. The detectives explained that they were looking into possible connections between Danny's death and Standorf's, a low-level civilian NSA employee at the restricted Vint Hill military facility. Standorf was killed by a blow to the head in early January, if not for the sake of stealing the 500 he had just retrieved from an ATM, then his body was made to look that way. It had been discovered at National Airport in late January, wrapped in his coat in the back seat of his car with the money missing. The detectives explained that Army intelligence officers joined their investigation of the case twice before an anonymous caller mentioned a link to Casalero. While the detectives never came up with evidence connecting the two cases, according to Ridgeway and Vaughan, they did discover that their anonymous tip came from one of Casalero's last informants, Bill Turner. After Casalero's death, Bill tried to synthesize the information that Danny had given him, but Bill was being stonewalled wherever he turned. I mean, he managed to contact some of Danny's sources, but got nothing. They would barely acknowledge Danny's existence, and can you really blame them after what happened to Danny? The massive amount of investigative work and notes, Bill had no hope of recreating it, and didn't have the know-how or stomach for retracing his steps. Bill also wasn't buying and never bought the suicide verdict. I mean, Casalero had primed him before he was found dead that if he did indeed die, that it was at the hands of those he was investigating. He told an investigator this. The man just nodded his head, eyes glossed over, taking no notes. Now, days before he died, Casalero called his friend Bill and lied to him. I'm writing an article for Time about the whole thing. It's going to be big. The whole thing. It's going to be out there. It's going to be revealed to everyone. And that's that. End quote. What whole thing, Bill asked him, but Casalero dodged that question. Bill always knew him as vague, circling, 
Time Warner, they're footing the whole thing. Jack Anderson is working with me on it. Big advances. I'm just finishing up details. And man, this is going to change things. End quote. Casolero was a bit frantic, like he'd had too much caffeine, and also like he was running out of time. After Casolero's death, Bill made some calls, found out the whole thing was bogus. No article for time, no financing, nothing. Bill has always found this puzzling. I mean, Casolero was given to exaggeration, sure, a bit over-ecstatic about conspiracy details he uncovered, but he wasn't one to lie about something as concrete as an article deal. Why Casolero lied about this has never been explained. The other interesting fact about Danny having sources inside government agencies was that in Martinsburg, witnesses claimed that they'd seen Danny's car parked behind an IRS building, which was made even more interesting because Recon Asciutto later told NBC's Unsolved Mysteries, who was doing a piece about this case, that Danny had an inside source in the IRS's computer data center that was giving him hard copy printouts of its information on specific targets Danny was after. Danny had a source there inside the IRS's uh, computer data center that was giving him uh, hard copy printouts of uh, uh, IRS information on certain specific targets that Danny was after. Fearful that he might be the next target of the octopus, Bill Turner got himself arrested in late September on a bank robbery charge. A similar strategy had been used by a spook named Richard Case Nagel when he realized he was entangled in the conspiracy to kill JFK. In September of 1963, Nagel shot up a bank in San Antonio, was arrested and thereby removed as a player. Less than an hour and a half after a bank robbery in the rural town of Gore, police picked up Turner and matched him with images from the bank's security camera. Then we come to Jonathan Moyle. I've spoken about Jonathan Moyle before in my GEC Marconi podcast, so if this does sound very much the same as what I said in that podcast, it is because both of those cases are relatable. Jonathan Moyle may have been part of the GEC Marconi thing, or he may have belonged to the death of Danny Casalera. So he's in both camps and involved in both cases. So now we come to Jonathan Moyle. So Jonathan Moyle was a 28-year-old editor of the magazine Defense Helicopter World and former RAF helicopter pilot was found dead in room 1406 of Santiago's Hotel Carrera on the 31st of March 1990. His purpose in Santiago was to attend a Chilean-sponsored defense conference. He was found hanging in a wardrobe with a pillowcase over his head, but a needle mark on his leg and a blood on the bed was not considered in the first police analyst. It was also evidence of possible asphyxiation and the presence of a strong sedative in his system. There was also evidence that Moyle and Casalero were probing different leads, but that their investigations involved some of the same people. Casalero knew about May's death and also learned about Ning's death shortly after it took place, but still he pursued on in his investigation. Moyle was interested in a Bell helicopter for civil use that the Chilean company Industras Cardone was converting to multi-use, especially for third world conditions and economies. At that time, just before the Gulf War, the invasion of Kuwait by Iraqi troops began on the 2nd of August 1990, Iraq was a potential customer for the helicopter. Moyle's death was considered initially by the Chilean and British authorities as suicide or death in some sort of bizarre sex game, but in December of 1991, after pressure from the Moyle family, a judicial investigation in Chile concluded that he had been assassinated, but as the police couldn't identify any suspect, they halted the manhunt. The United Kingdom inquest, also into the death of Moyle, opened in Exeter in November of 1990. It was adjourned by forensic doctor Richard Van Open after a pathologist said the autopsy could not be completed due to the fact that vital organs had been removed. In 1998, the reconvened inquest found that he had been unlawfully killed and the authorities later apologised to the family for spreading the allegation of suicide. 
Now we come to a very interesting piece. So apparently excerpts from an apparently unredacted version of a CIA report entitled Project Babylon published in 2013 by the British magazine Lobster and in May 2014 by the newspaper Tribune blame the murder of Jonathan Moyle on a British government agent, the late Stephen Aldolphus Cock. The unredacted CIA report states, and I quote, Meantime, as we coordinated an MI6 setup, alleged nuclear capacitors shipped from US by Euromac for Iraq was seen at Heathrow Airport led to the arrest of CEO Ali de Gore and Janine Speckman-Cock found the defence journalist Jonathan Moyle possessed evidence of UK covert deals. Consequently, Cock and a third named agent eliminated him in Santiago, Chile, end quote. The dead man's father, retired teacher Tony Moyle, said that the motive for the murder lay in Moyle's uncovering of information regarding arms shipments from Chile to Iraq. The family's claim of a concealment has been supported by a book, The Valkyrie Operation, on Moyle's death, written by Wesley Clarkson. The author alleges that Moyle was killed by a local hitman hired by arms dealer Carlos Cardone, who denies he had any participation in Moyle's death. In late 1997, a Santiago Court of Appeal reopened the investigation into Jonathan Moyle's death, following representations from a lawyer representing the family. The editor of Lobster provided additional insight and context to the affair in a speech to the Centre for Security Analysis in London on the 8th of November 2000 and published in the summer 2001 edition of Lobster, issue number 41, explaining how the SISs are so awful to work for. Quote, Tag Jonathan Moyle, a not very bright, gung-ho, queening countryman. Young Moyle, while at university at Aberystwyth, was a special branch snitch who thought it was his patriotic duty to tell the local SB who was smoking dope. On graduating, he became an agent for, well, MI6 probably, though who knows? Moyle ended up being murdered in Chile, according to a book about him. Moyle wasn't very subtle as an intelligence asset and was poking around the Chilean's arms dealer Cardone, one of Mark Thatcher's friends, while Cardone was doing a big helicopter deal with the Iraqis. This was in the run-up to the American attack on Iraq. Moyle ended up dead in a wardrobe in Chile, and what does the local FCO guy do? Tell the media that Moyle was the victim of an autoerotic accident, strangled himself while having a wank. End quote. Next on the list is Alan May. So Alan Michael May was a Nixon campaign aide who four days after interviewing Reconosciuto on June 19th of 1991 died in his home in San Francisco. Reconosciuto claimed that May had been involved in the October surprise and that May had reportedly been involved with Michael Reconosciuto and the movement of $40 million in bribe money to the Iranians in operation known as the October surprise. What was interesting about his death is it was originally ruled as a heart attack but when an autopsy was performed it was discovered that he had polypharmaceuticals which is a mix of different types of medication in his body. It is known that if you mix some medication together it will cause heart attacks which is why I think this heart attack was forcibly induced. Then we come to Anson Ning. Now Anson Ning, who I kind of mentioned before, was a reporter for the Financial Times of London who was pursuing Jimmy Hughes, the Wackenhut security guard who was apparently central to the Alvarez murder case. He traced him to South America in an attempt to get an interview, however while in Guatemala during July of 1991, Ning was murdered by a single bullet to the chest and his death was ruled a suicide. Strangely, the Guatemalan government was asked to retrieve Ning's floppy disks and personal paper regarding his investigation. They didn't turn them over to an unnamed U.S. intelligence agency. In a press conference three weeks later, Senator Alan Cranston requested these items be returned, but they never were. 
Next on the list was Dennis H. Eisman, the Fatal Vision Lawyer. So Eisman was a lawyer for Reconosciuto. He was known as a Fatal Vision Lawyer due to his involvement in the infamous and controversial trial of Jeffrey McDonald. Eisman and his former law partner, Bernard L. Siegel, represented Green Beret Army Surgeon Dr. Jeffrey McDonald, who was accused in 1970 of brutally murdering his pregnant wife and two young daughters at Fort Bragg, N.C. Eisenman and Seagull represented McDonald during army hearings that resulted in the dismissal of military charges. McDonald was convicted in U.S. District Court of the murders in 1980 and is serving three prison life terms. He has appealed his case three times to the U.S. Supreme Court and has recently requested a new trial. Eisman helped Seagull prepare one of the three Supreme Court trial appeals and also worked with a team of attorneys to reopen the case a few years ago. Quote, he was very deeply committed to Dr. McDonald. He believed very deeply in Dr. McDonald, and he believed, as I did, that Dr. McDonald was unjustly accused and made every effort to give him a new trial, as quoted by his law partner Seagal. End quote. McDonald has repeatedly claimed drug-crazed intruders attacked him and murdered his wife and daughters. The McDonald case led to the book Fatal Vision by Joe McGuinness, who concluded McDonald had committed the murders. A television movie was also based on the book. Eisman was found dead in his grey sports car in a downtown parking garage shortly after 8.30am. A Walther handgun registered to Eisman was found at the scene. William Gilbert, a chief investigator at the Philadelphia Medical Examiner's Office, then stated that Dennis H. Eisman shot himself once in the chest while sitting in his parked car. Gilbert said he based his rulings on the fact of his own investigation and that of police. Eisen was a high-profile lawyer whose clients included drug dealers and organized crime figures. His chauffeured limousine carried vanity plates reading, Acquit You. An associate and friend said allegations that Eisen was involved in handling funds generated through sales of cocaine and marijuana were absolute nonsense. Quote, There's no way that Dennis ever did anything illegal or improper in his life. That was quoted by Elliot Tol- Tolan, a lawyer who shared Eisen's office and who also told that to the Philadelphia Inquirer. But sources said federal prosecutors were ready to bring Eisman into court and were seeking his cooperation in surrendering the for arraignment. According to one source, an indictment naming Eisman was scheduled to go down very soon. Tolan said Eisman was concerned but not despondent after learning he was about to be indicted on federal money laundering charges. Quote, I can't believe he would take his own life. It just wasn't his style not to fight back, said fellow at defense attorney Charles Pruto Sr. End quote. Assistant U.S. Attorney Paul, and I'm going to butcher this name, Samosakis, declined to comment but said that six of ten people already charged who have pleaded guilty and that the investigation, which began in 1985, was continuing. Others close to the case said some of those who admitted guilt had implicated Eisman. Interestingly enough, Eisenman was also in contact with Danny Kessler and was planning a trip to Washington to defend Reconosciuto and also to speak with a witness who'd claims of threats to his client Reconosciuto. However, he died before he could make the trip and the indictment, strangely enough, never appeared. Now, when Reconosciuto found out about Eisenman's death, he made a phone call to Virginia McCullough who stated that Reconosciuto was very panicky in jail and also stated that they've killed my attorney and also asked her to phone James Guthrie who was also working on his case to warn him, which she did, and Guthrie told her that he was out and left and disappeared. Then we come to the next person on the list, which was Fred Alvarez. So, in early 1981, Fred Alvarez, a tribal vice president with the Cabazon Band of Mission Indians, started complaining that money from the tribe's casino was being skimmed. Witness statements and other evidence reveals that John P. Nicholas Sr., who had, in addition to his claims of a CIA affiliation, long-established ties to organized crime, confessed to ordering the hit that resulted in the death of Alvarez and the others. In response, subsequent investigations have linked their deaths to a network of corruption 
agreement that included organised crime, arms trafficking, partnership with Wake and Hut Private Security, and the government backing modification and distribution of stolen software. According to a previous FBI release, the matter was brought to the attention of the Bureau by the Department of the Interior's Bureau of Indian Affairs. Linda Streeter Dukic, Alvarez's sister, described early relations of Alvarez and the inner circle around Nichols as being amicable, but says that when he started objecting to some of the schemes coming down from Nichols and the other tribe leaders, they began to send him on business trips. One trip was to Denver in June of 1981 to attend a conference. Streeter says that while in Denver, Alvarez was offered a large amount of money to carry drugs back to Indo, but had turned the offer down. On the morning of July 1st of 1981, three bodies were discovered behind a shabby concrete ranch house on Bob Hope Drive, a main drag in a sand-swept stretch of California's scorch in Coachella Valley. The corpses were sprawled in a semicircle on chairs and beds that had been dragged into the backyard. Each of the victims, the house's owner, Fred Alvarez, his girlfriend, Patricia Castro, and guests named Ralph Bolger, had been killed by a single 38 caliber gunshot to the head. Police surmised that Alvarez and his friends had been planning to sleep outdoors to escape the heat of the house, which had no air conditioning, and were surprised in the dark by one or more assailants. There were few clues and no witnesses left at the scene. The crime had all the hallmarks of a professional hit. Suggestions have been made that the, that the investigation of the deaths by the police was slipshod and hurried. Police familiar with the case note the friendship of Nichols was one of the investigating detectives. One police investigator believed he was removed from the case entirely because of pressure put on his superiors from the outside. When the investigator pursued further on his own, he received death threats, one from a crossbow-wielding man. Fearing for his family, the man gave up and moved out of town. Then we come to Larry Gurian. So Larry was a private investigator who had been hired to, it is said, gather some type of evidence for recon a shooter relating to the Inslaw case. However, there is no information in relation to exactly what he was investigating for recon a shooter or the circumstances surrounding his death, other than he was killed under mysterious and suspicious circumstances in Mason County, Washington in February 1987. Then we come to David Meyer. So on February 6th of 1989 in the San Francisco Bay Area, attorney David Meyer died from a gunshot wound. The next day he was to have appeared in district court defending clients who were reportedly tied in with CIA drug trafficking activities. An activist, Meyer sought to expose links between Iran-Contra, the Justice Department, the CIA and others. Then there was Dexter Jacobson, he was the next one to die. Attorney Dexter Jacobson was killed on August 14th of 1990, just before he was to present evidence of rampant Chapter 11 judicial corruption to the FBI. Then there was Gary Pennell. Attorney Gary Ray Pennell was killed on the 11th of February 1991, just before he too was to present evidence of Chapter 11 corruption to the FBI. Next on the list was Gail and Ian Sparrow. So on the 1st of November 1992, the bodies of Gail Sparrow and her three children were found in their Rancho Santa Fe, California home. Death resulted from gunshot wounds to the head. Three days later, the body of Gail's husband, Ian Sparrow, was found dead in the Ford seat of his Ford Explorer in the remote California desert. Now, interestingly enough, authorities said the cause of death was cyanide poisoning and then ruled Ian Sparrow had murdered his wife and children and then taken his own life. Sparrow reportedly had connections to the CIA and had been involved in various operations. He was also helping Michael Reconosciuto collect documents to present to a federal grand jury conducting hearings into Inslaw when he died. Then there was Jose Aguilar. Jose Aguilar, a tree trimmer who occasionally worked at the Spurrow home, was found dead from a gunshot wound to the head on November 14th of 1992. Then there was Peter Sandivorn. So Peter Sandivorn, who was helping Michael Reconosciuto defend himself against the Justice Department, was found dead on December 2nd of 1992. Sandivorn was reportedly part of a special CIA team during the 80s. The circumstances of his death raised questions as the gun he always carried was found without the ammo clip. 
Then there was John Crawford. In April of 1993, John Crawford died of a heart attack in Tacoma, Washington. Then there was Val Delante. So Valley Delante disappeared on August 18th of 1992 as she was trying to warn Michael Riconosciuto about a plan by DEA and Justice Department officials to set him up on a drug charge. The skeletal remains of her body were discovered in a ravine at Lake Bay, Washington on April 13th of 1993. Her death prevented her from testifying on behalf of Riconosciuto. Her friend Debbie Baker reported to author Rodney Stitch that Valley had called her shortly before her disappearance and stated that she had very sensitive information concerning the Inslaw matter. Then there was Barry Kusnick. Barry Kusnick was said to have modified the Promise software with something known as Brainstorm, which was supposed to allow Promise to deduce from personality characteristics the potential actions of the person being traced. His body has never been found, and after his disappearance, his family members had a hard time getting his business partner to acknowledge knowing him. Then there was Paul Moraska. Paul Moraska, roommate of Michael Riconosciuto, was murdered in 1982 in their apartment. He was found hogtied by a telephone cord noosed around his neck and his curled legs. Moraska had strangled slowly as his legs uncurled. Then there was Mary Quick. Three days after Paul Masaka's murder, a woman named Mary Quick, 63 years old, and a school teacher and woman's auxiliary president of Fresno's American Legion, was headed towards Legion Post 509 when she was killed by a single gunshot to the head, an apparent unrelated mugging. A year after the murder, however, police learned that Reconosciuto claimed a business association with Mary Quick's nephew, Brian Weiss. Police sources told the San Francisco Examiner that Weiss gave his aunt a bank card with secret account numbers, perhaps the same access code that may have led to Paul Moraska's murder. According to police, she had no connection to any of the principal players and could be trusted. Mary Quick was to be instructed to give information only to Paul Moraska or Michael Riconosciuto. She was not aware of what the computer card was for and had never received the card. Riconosciuto claimed that Mary Quick's murderers were probably trying to recover the card. Then we come to Abby Hoffman. Most interestingly enough, of all the mysterious deaths connected to Innslaw was that of 1960s political activist Abby Hoffman. Hoffman wrote an early piece in the October Surprise for Playboy magazine and shortly thereafter was involved in a very suspicious automobile accident. Most regarded as death on the 12th of April 1989 as the suicide it was reported as caused perhaps in part due to depression he'd suffered from the continued pain resulting from that accident. Others, however, suspected foul play in Hoffman's death. Notably, David Dellinger a fellow member of the Chicago 8. Dellinger's suspicions even led him to attempt to retrieve the coroner's report for examination, but interestingly enough, he was stopped by a threatened court battle. Quote, they basically would not allow that to go to court, end quote. Dellinger concluded, but Abby's son Andrew and Abby's first wife Sheila are convinced he was murdered. Again, end quote. Then we come to the last on the list, which was Paul Wiltshire. So a month after the Boer report was released, the body of investigator and attorney Paul Wiltshire was found under mysterious circumstances. Wiltshire was seeking to expose Iran-Contra, the October Surprise, BCCI, and the Inslaw scandals. At the time of his death, he was investigating gun running out of Mena, Arkansas, and shortly before his death, he wrote a 105-page letter to Attorney General Janet Reno describing evidence that he allegedly had concerning the aforementioned scandals. The first page of his letter stated, in part, and I quote, The lives of key participants, other witnesses, and even myself are now in grave danger as a result of my passing this information on to you. If you let this information fall into the hands of the wrong persons, some or all of those who know the truth could well be silenced in the very near future. End quote. 
Wiltshire's body was found in his Washington, D.C. home on the 23rd of July of 1993. The coroner's report made after the autopsy could not find or didn't report the cause of death. Now we're going to get into most of Danny Casselaro's research. So shortly before his death, Casselaro told people that he was nearly ready to reveal a wide-ranging conspiracy involving the Inslaw case, Iran-Contra, the alleged October surprise conspiracy, and the closure of BCCI. David Korn writes in The Nation that the papers Casselaro left behind reveal few clues except that he was in over his head but was tenacious. His papers included old clippings, handwritten notes that were hard to read, and the names of former CIA officers and arms dealers. Korn writes that the notes show Kesselero was influenced by the Christic Institute and that he had pursued material fed to him by a reporter who worked for the Lydon La Roche. Richard Fricker writes in Wired that Casalero had been led into a, and I quote, Bermuda Triangle of Spooks, Guns, Drugs and Organised Crime. End quote. Danny Casalero stepped into a world that he didn't belong in. Uh, the type of people that he became involved with um, lie just as a matter of, of course. Uh, I think after a while, some don't even know what the real truth is. Uh, they lie, they cheat. There are people who have been involved in numerous murders, dealing drugs, dealing arms. And Danny Casalero thought he could find his way through this labyrinth by himself. That was a mistake. Several events that Danny was investigating included the October Surprise Conspiracy Theory, which refers to an alleged plot to influence the outcome of the 1980 United States presidential election contested between Democratic incumbent President Jimmy Carter and his Republican opponent, former California Governor Ronald Reagan. One of the leading national issues during 1980 was the release of 66 Americans being held hostage in Iran since the November 4th of 1979. Reagan won the election, and on the day of his inauguration, in fact, minutes after he concluded his 20-minute inaugural address, the Islamic Republic of Iran announced the release of the hostages. The timing gave rise to an allegation that representatives of Reagan's presidential campaign had conspired with Iran to delay the release until after the election to thwart President Jimmy Carter from pulling off an October surprise. According to the allegation, the Reagan administration subsequently rewarded Iran for its participation in the plot by supplying Iran with weapons via Israel and by unblocking Iranian government monetary assets in U.S. banks. After 12 years of varying media attention, both houses of the United States Congress held separate inquiries and concluded that credible evidence supporting the allegation was absent or insufficient. Nevertheless, several individuals, most notably former Iranian president, and I'm going to butcher this name, I do apologize, Abul Hassan Banistar, former naval intelligence officer and U.S. National Security Council member Gary Sick, and Barbara Honegger, a former campaign staffer and White House analyst for Reagan and his successor George H.W. Bush, have stood by the allegation. He was also investigating the Iran-Contra affair, which was a political scandal in the United States that occurred during the second term of the Reagan administration. Between 1981 and 1986, senior administration officials secretly facilitated the sales of arms to the Islamist Khomeini government of the Islamic Republic of Iran, which was the subject of an arms embargo. The administration hoped to use the proceeds of the arms sale to fund the Contras, a white-ring rebel group in Nicaragua. Under the Boland Amendment, further funding of the Contras by the government had been prohibited by Congress. The official justification for the arms shipments was that they were part of an operation to free seven American hostages being held in Lebanon by Hezbollah, an Islamist paramilitary group with Iranian ties connected to the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. The idea to exchange arms for hostages was proposed by, I'm going to 
butcher this name, I do apologize, Manucha Gorbenifar, an expatriate Iranian arms dealer. Some within the Reagan administration hopes the sales would influence Iran to get Hezbollah to release the hostages. In 1985, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North and the Na- of the National Security Council diverted a portion of the proceeds from the Iranian weapons sales to fund the Contras, a group of anti-Sandinista rebels in their insurgency against the socialist government of Nicaragua. North later claimed that Gorbanifa had given him the idea for diverting profits from Tau and Hawk missile sales to Iran to the Nicaraguan Contras. While President Ronald Reagan was a vocal supporter of the Contra cause, the evidence is disputed as to whether he personally authorised the diversion of funds to the Contras. Handwritten notes taken by Defence Secretary Caspar Weinberger on the 7th of December 1985 indicate that Reagan was aware of potential hostage transfers with Iran, as well as the sale of Hawk and Tow missiles to moderate elements within that country. Weinberger wrote that Reagan said he could answer charges of illegality, but he couldn't answer charges that big strong President Reagan passed up a chance to free hostages. End quote. After the weapon sales were revealed in November of 1986, Reagan appeared on national television and stated that the weapons transfers had indeed occurred, but that the United States did not trade arms for hostages. The investigation was impeded when large volumes of documents relating to the affair were destroyed or withheld from investigators by Reagan administration officials. On the 4th of March 1987, Reagan made a further nationally televised address, taking full responsibility for the affair and stating that, and I quote, what began as a strategic opening to Iran deteriorated in its implementation into trading arms for hostages, end quote. The affair was investigated by the U.S. Congress and by the three-person Reagan-appointed Tower Commission. Neither investigation found evidence that President Reagan himself knew of the extent of the multiple programs. Additionally, United States Deputy Attorney General Lawrence Walsh was appointed independent counsel in December of 1986 to investigate possible criminal actions by officials involved in the scheme. In the end, several dozen administration officials were indicted, including then-Secretary of Defense Caspar Weinberger. Eleven convictions resulted, some of which were vacated on appeal. The rest of those indicted or convicted were all pardoned in the final days of the presidency of George H.W. Bush, who had been vice president at the time of the affair. Former independent counsel Walsh noted that in issuing the pardons, Bush appeared to have been preempting being implicated himself by evidence that came to light during the Weinberger trial, and noted that there was a pattern of deception and obstruction by Bush, Weinberger, and other senior Reagan administration officials. Walsh submitted his final report on August the 4th of 1993 and later wrote an account of his experience as counsel, Firewall, the Iran-Contra Conspiracy and Cover-Up. Danny was also looking into the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, BCCI, which was an international bank funded in 1972 by Aga Hassan Abidi, a Pakistani financer. The bank was registered in Luxembourg with head offices in Karachi and London. A decade after opening, BCCI had over 400 branches in 78 countries and assets in excess of US $20 billion, making it the seventh largest private bank in the world. BCCI, however, came under the scrutiny of financial and regulators and intelligence agencies in the 1980s due to concerns that it was poorly regulated. Subsequent investigations revealed that it was involved in massive money laundering and other financial crimes and had illegally gained the controlling interest in a major American bank. BCCI became the focus of a massive regulatory battle in 1991, and on the 5th of July of that year, customs and bank regulators in seven countries raided and locked down records of its branch offices during Operation Sea Chase. 
Investigators in the United States and the UK determined that BCCI had been set up deliberately to avoid centralized regulatory review and operated exclusively in bank secrecy jurisdictions. Its affairs were extraordinarily complex. Its officers were sophisticated international bankers whose apparent objective was to keep their affairs secret, to commit fraud on a massive scale, and to avoid detection. The liquidators, Delot and Touche, filed a lawsuit against the bank's auditors, Pricewaterhouse and Ernest & Young, which was settled for $175 million in 1998. By 2013, Dellett and Torch claimed to have recovered about 75% of the creditors' lost money. Danny was hoping to turn all his research into a book titled the aptly named Behold a Pale Horse. However, he had a lot of trouble getting any publishers interested in his book. The story began with Inslaw's allegation that the Justice Department had stolen software from it. Casselow then began to develop his octopus conspiracy theory about a crime cabal with global reach. Friends say he devoted most of his time to the story. Casselaro is not the only writer who became intrigued by the notion of a massive conspiracy. Another pursuing a similar story reports that Casselaro called him in early June, and perhaps to scare him off, said he had a book and even a movie deal wrapped up. However, nothing could have been further from the truth. According to Roger Donald, the top editor of Little Brown Books, to whom Casselaro submitted his proposal, Donald says, I'll tell you this, anybody who killed him over that manuscript made a mistake. That was not a book that was going to be published. End quote. Donald says he met Casselaro but found that his book proposal was hyperbolic and very unprofessional. A couple of weeks before his death, Casselaro called and said, and I quote, I've really got this whole thing together now, the editor says. But Casselaro's revised proposal showed no improvement, or so Donald claims. Quote, my final remark to him was, I could write this outline, I could say there have been the following crimes and list them. Maybe he was onto something, but he sure as hell couldn't express it. End quote. Now we get into the final days of Danny Casalero. So on August 5th of 1991, Casalero phoned Bill McCoy, a retired CID officer, to tell him that Time magazine had assigned him an article about the octopus. He further claimed to be working with reporter Jack Anderson and that publishers Little Brown and Time Warner had offered to finance the effort. All of these claims were later, however, shown to be false. Little and Brown, for example, had rejected his octopus manuscript over a month earlier. On the same day, Casalero's friend Ben Mason agreed to talk to Casalero about his finances. A few days later, Casalero showed Mason a 22-point outline for his book and expressed frustration at having been tied up with literary agents who were unable to sell it for the last 18 months. He also allegedly complained about his sleep being disturbed for the previous three months by calls during the night. The following day, a neighbour of Casalero's and longtime housekeeper Olga helped Casalero pack a black leather tote. She remembers him packing a thick leaf of papers into a dark brown or black briefcase. Casalero said he was leaving for several days to visit Martinburg's West Virginia to meet a source who who promised to provide an important missing piece to his story. This was the last time that Olga saw him. Olga told the village voice that she answered several threatening telephone calls at Casalero's home that day. She said that one man called about 9am and said, and I quote, I will cut his body and throw it to the sharks, end quote. Then an hour later, a different man said, drop dead. There was a third call, but Olga remembered only that no one spoke and that she heard music as though a radio were playing. A fourth call was the same as the third, and a fifth call, this one silent, came later that night. Now, according to the Village Voice, Casselero's whereabouts between late in the day of August 8th and the afternoon of August 9th are unknown. The day before he died, according to the Martinsburg Morning Journal, he ate at Pizza Hut, where he told the waitress he liked to rise and quoted the Great Gatsby to her. He then met Honeywell engineer William Richard Turner at the Sheraton at about 2.30pm on August 9th. Turner says he gave Casselero some documents and they spoke for a few minutes. Witnesses reported that Casselero spent the next few hours at a Martinsburg restaurant. 
A bartender there told police that he had seemed lonely and depressed. The police further learned that Castellero was seen at Heatherfield's, the cocktail lounge at the Sheridan, at around 5pm, with a man described by a waitress as maybe Arab or Iranian, end quote. Now, that last person that he was seen with, as far as I know, that Arab or Iranian has never been identified and the police were never able to locate him. At about 5.30pm that night, Castellero happened to meet Mike Looney, who rented the room next to Castellero's room 517. They chatted on two occasions, first at about 5.30pm and then again at about 8pm. Looney later explained, and I quote, Castellero said he was there to meet an important source who was going to give him what he needed to solve the case. End quote. According to Looney, Castellero claimed that his source was scheduled to arrive by 9pm. Around that time, Castellero left Looney explaining that he had to make a telephone call. He returned a few minutes later and said that his source might have blown him off. Castellero and Looney talked until about 9.30pm and about 10pm, Castellero bought coffee at a nearby convenience store. That was the last time anyone reported seeing him alive. Now we get to his death. So at about noon on August 10th of 1991, housekeeping staff discovered Castellero naked in the bathtub of room 517. His wrists had been deeply slashed. There were three or four wounds on his right wrist and seven or eight on his left. Some of them were so deep they hit the tendon and oddly enough, there were no signs of any hesitation marks. Blood was splattered on the bathroom wall and floor and according to Ridgway and Vaughan, the scene was so gruesome that one of the housekeepers fainted when she saw it. End quote. Under Casalero's body, paramedics found an empty Milwaukee beer can, two white plastic liner trash bags, and a single-edged razor blade. There was also a half-empty wine bottle nearby. There was also a shoelace wrapped around his neck, and Ridgway and Vaughan write that nothing was placed in the bathtub drain to prevent derbs from draining away, and none of the bathwater was saved. Other than the gruesome scene, the hotel room was clean and orderly. There was a legal pad and pen present on the desk, a single page had been torn from the pad, and a message was written on it. Quote, to those who I loved the most. Please forgive me for the worst possible thing I could have done. Most of all, I am sorry to my son. I know deep down that God will let me in. End quote. Now see, this was interesting because his family stated that Danny was an atheist. So why would an atheist write a very generic suicide note stating that his son shouldn't worry about him getting into heaven? If you're an atheist, you wouldn't be worried about heaven. It's a very contradictory piece of evidence. Based on the note, the absence of a struggle, no sign of forced entry, and the presence of alcohol, police judge the case a straightforward suicide, which I do not agree with whatsoever. After inspecting the scene, they found four more razor blades in their envelopes in a small package. Police interviews further revealed that no one had seen nor heard anything suspicious. The Martinsburg police contacted authorities in Fairfax, Virginia, who said they could notif- they would notify Kessler's family. However, for unknown reasons, his family was not notified of his death for two days and they're convinced, as I am, that he was murdered. When Danny's brother Tony contacted the police, he was stunned to learn about the two days without notification. He asked about Danny's papers, his investigation, and his overall life. Interestingly enough, the officer did not know about any of it. My mother called me, and, you know, uh, she said, uh, Danny's dead, they've killed him. And I called the police at that point. She didn't really know any details and spoke with the sergeant doing the investigation. Hi, this is Dr. Tony Casalero. I'm calling about Danny Casalero. Yes, I just spoke with the father. How can I help you? Yes. What happened? And he said, we found your brother and he committed suicide. Suicide. The hotel maid found his body when she went in to clean his room on Saturday around one o'clock. Uh, Saturday? This is Monday. I asked them why it had taken them two days to notify us and he, he at the moment didn't know. He just said he thought we had already been notified. Uh, sir, no. Uh, look, what do you know about my brother? I started asking him questions. What about all the papers he had with him? 
the investigation he was doing, and the, and the sergeant was clearly, really didn't have any idea about this, and at that point told me they found no papers in his room. The papers that he had with him included hundreds of notes and documents from his year-long investigation. The day before his death, again, interestingly enough, Danny met with another source, William Turner, who was a former employee of a major defense contractor. According to him, he handed over paperwork describing corruption that Danny believed was tied to the octopus. The next day, Danny was dead and William's documents were missing along with the rest of Danny's papers. They have never been found. Danny also had from reports what was described as an accordion file that was also never found. The police searched nearby dumpsters, canines covered a mile-long stretch of highway and found nothing. Tony claimed that Danny had been embalmed without the family's permission, which is illegal as the family must give permission for this to be done. Danny's family also noted that he was afraid of blood tests and needles, so they felt that it would be extremely unlikely that he would commit suicide by slashing his wrists. Wendy Weaver, who dated Casolaro for seven years and at one time lived with him, con concurs with that theory. Quote, Danny hated the sight of blood, she said matter-of-factly. Additionally, he didn't like to be seen naked. To be found in a tub naked, that's not Danny. End quote. Casolaro also suffered many odd coincidences, which seemed to accelerate in the last weeks of his life. For example, an FBI agent knocked on his door who claimed to be looking for a man named Clifford. Casolaro told him that he had the wrong house and the man went away. In a restaurant, he started talking to a guy nearby who just happened to be Special Forces, a fact that he was willing to make public. He was in a hotel in Richmond and in the lounge there was a guy that looked just like him, his double. The guy was even seen wearing the same coloured shirt. He was in line at the Department of Motor Vehicles, discovered the guy in front of him also had the same name Casolero, no relation though, which was not a common name. The guy seemed to shrug it off and say that's sure funny. Again, he was in a supermarket checkout line. A guy comes up to him, puts his arm around him, said his name was Hector, and asked how he was doing. Casolero replied back Hector, and he said, Yeah, come on, Hector Sario. Don't play games, my man. Danny told him he must have him confused with someone else and told him that his real name was Danny Casolero. The guy stepped back, looked him up and down, shrugged his shoulders, and said, Man, I'm sorry, I thought you were Hector. He then disappeared into the produce section. Now, all of these coincidences are extremely weird, if you ask me, but that's only my opinion on the matter. Now, a week before his death, Danny told Tony that he had been receiving frequent death threats. He also said that, don't believe a suicide. I won't kill myself. If I die, it's because they killed me. They're calling me and threatening me. Odd calls in the middle of night, the night for months. I can't sleep. I'm getting too close. I'm going to expose them once and for all. I'm working on the details. Slit wrists, hanging in the shower, a balcony jump. Don't believe it. It's not me. If you hear I'm dead, it was no accident. My sister Lisa killed herself and it devastated the whole family. I could never do that. A running car, in a closed garage, pill overdose, diving off a cliff. I didn't do it. If you find a note, I didn't write it. End quote. Who are these guys? Well, I don't know. I mean, I know a couple of them. They're the guys that I've been working with, my contacts. And they're calling me and saying, look, Danny, you're getting too close. You're going to get hurt. Back off. And I'm getting calls in the middle of the night from guys I've never heard of. I don't recognize their voices. I don't know where they're coming from. They're just saying, you are going to die. <laughs> I'll tell you this, though, when I go to Martinsburg, if something happens to me or if I should get hurt, don't believe it's an accident. Now we get into the police invest or the, the sub-par police investigation, I should say, not police investigation, because it was anything but a police investigation. So the first autopsy was performed on Casalero's body at the University of Virginia on August 14th of 1991. The coroner determined that the blood loss was the cause of death and that the death had occurred one to four hours before the body was discovered, or roughly between 8am and 11am on August the 10th. 
The autopsy confirmed that bleeding from the wrist cuts were the cause of his death. It also suggested that he was not alone at the time. Specifically, there was a bruise on his arm and head. Also, the tips of three of his fingernails were missing. One medical examiner said no person could have withstood the pain of the deep incisions and continued. I was told there were no signs of any struggle. There was, on the actual autopsy report, described a bruise on the arm and a bruise on the head which were never accounted for. Uh, additionally, the tips of three fingernails were missing from one hand. Assistant medical examiner for the state of West Virginia. He said, well, you know, um, he's already been embalmed and that's gonna make it a little difficult. And I said, what are you talking about? He's already been embalmed. And he said, well, he was embalmed uh, apparently already. He said, you didn't know that? I said, absolutely not. I said. We didn't give any permission. I said, is that how it's what's supposed to happen? He said, no, that's not. He said, but we'll just have to look into that. You know, the other things, the embalming, the whatever, you think, well, you know, things can happen and just accept things. But this, they did not tell us the truth. He had bruises on him. Danny's family learned that his hotel room was cleaned by a professional cleaning crew the day after his death. They inadvertently discarded important evidence. Interestingly, one of them remembered seeing two bloody towels in the bathroom, although it appeared that someone had tried to clean the blood off of the floor prior to when the professional crew arrived. Several towels were found on the bathroom floor as if it and it looked as if they'd been used to wipe up blood, someone doing so using their foot, according to one of the housekeeping heads at the hotel. The blood smeared in a trail leading to the disposed towels. These towels were later thrown away. From the moment we heard about his reported suicide, we uh, doubted it, questioned it, wondered about it. It was not his nature to kill himself. So we were suspicious from the first. And then the deeper we dug into it, the more suspicious we became. Suspicious circumstances uh, surrounding the investigation of his alleged suicide. Casalero was also in contact with an FBI agent in the weeks prior to his death. FBI field agent Thomas Gates told the committee that Casalero sounded very upbeat and not like someone contemplating suicide. Casalero had a phone book containing Gates's telephone number, which was never located during the police investigation, a fact that Gates found very unsettling. During the four weeks they talked, Gates also learned that Casalero's primary source on the Inslaw affair was an individual Gates had accused of maintaining ties to organized crime in an affidavit he had presented to a federal court. Casalero's colleagues say this individual had subtly warned Casalero about risks involved with his probe. Thus, when Gates learned of Casalero's death, it set off alarm bells. The day after Casalero's body was found, Village Voice editor Dan Bischoff received an anonymous telephone call alerting him to Casalero's death. By Tuesday, August 13th, Ridgeway and Vaughan wrote, and I quote, The rumours were flying, and by the next day the crazies started coming out of the woodwork. There were vague unsubstantiated rumours that the Mafia was somehow involved, and the wildest story even suggested that the Undertaker was an employee of the CIA, hired to clean up after an agency assassination. Even at the funeral, the family felt engulfed by mysteries, end quote. The questions, indeed, still kept coming. For example, why did Casalero put a rolled-up note in his boot that cited key figures from his research? Another unanswered question is why have family members never been allowed to independently verify the handwriting on Casalero's suicide note, along with 65 pieces of other evidence? I mean, even in death, mystery still plagued Danny's life. And this was a, a very interesting side note to this whole affair that no one's ever gotten to the bottom of, although various people have tried. 
As the ceremony drew to a close at his funeral, a highly decorated military officer in US Army dress reportedly arrived in limousine, accompanied by another man in plain clothes. The military man approached the coffin just before it was lowered into the ground, laid a medal on the lid and saluted. No one recognised either man and to this day they've never been identified. When the family looked into this, it turned out that the only known government agency that puts medals on top of its coffins is the NSA, the National Security Agency. As far as I'm aware, Danny had nothing to do with that agency apart from his connection to Alan Standorf, who was alleged to have given Danny classified NSA documents relating to Inslaw and who also worked for them at Vint Hill. He, interestingly enough, was found dead under extremely suspicious and mysterious circumstances some six to eight months prior to Danny's death in August of 1991 on or around January 3rd of 1991, which I mentioned before in my list of people that have died in this case. It was really unusual because I noticed this talk stoic-looking black man in full military dress standing there with this, like, plain-clothes type of guy. And we went back to Francis's house, Danny's mother's house, and I said, Francis, who was, who was the, the military man? And she said, I thought you'd know. Don't you know that guy? And I said, no. And we asked everyone there. There had to be 50 people at Francis's house. No one knew who they were. No one. Further, Casalero was known to have complained numerous times about threatening or unsettling phone calls directed at him, often occurring late at night, which I've also talked about, including those received by his housekeeper during his absences from his home. After Casalero's death was reported by several mainstream news organizations, police re-examined room 517. The adjacent rooms had been rented the evening of Casalero's death, one by Mike Looney, the other by an unnamed family. No one reported hearing anything unusual either on the night of August 9th or on the morning of August 10th. In January of 1992, about five months after Casalero's death, Dr. Frost of the Virginia State Medical Examiner's Office performed another autopsy. He returned a second suicide verdict, citing blood loss as a cause of death. Frost said there was evidence of the early stages of multiple sclerosis, but the degree of severity was probably minor. Toxicology analysis uncovered traces of several drugs, antidepressant, estomophian, and alcohol. Sorry if I butchered that name. He wrote, and I quote, There was nothing present in any way that could have inca incapacitated Casalero so that he would have been incapable of struggling against an assailant, let alone been sufficient to kill him, end quote. Although I must admit, I have I have a bit of a problem with that because I've heard other varying reports that stated that Danny had a very very small what was quoted at the time as an antidepressant in his system, but it was such a small substance or there was such a small amount of it that they weren't able to to test it for anything else, and that kind of alarmed Danny's brother because apparently, according to Danny's brother, he wasn't prescribed any medication. So what was medication doing in Danny's system? And because it was such a small sample, they weren't able to test it to find out what it was so I have a hard time believing that there was nothing in his system that could have incapacitated him because they were never able to actually prove that beyond considerable doubt all they were able to say was yes we pumped his stomach we did a toxicology report there were some things in his system but everything's fine well no it's not because as Danny's brother said they didn't really know what was in there because it was such a small sample of it so they couldn't really tell what it was Ron Rosenbaum, a journalist acquaintance of Casalero, speculated in Vanity Fair that Casalero may have intended his suicide to appear to be murder, triggered by his research, in order to have others look into the story after his death. Later investigations showed that the FBI misled Congress about investigating Casalero's death, and members of an FBI task force looking into Casalero's death questioned the conclusion of suicide and recommended further investigation. This level of doubt was specifically significant because even at that time, December 1992, it was understood that to express 
voice those views risked one's career. FBI documents show that some files on Castellera are being withheld from public release, which is contradicted by the FBI, saying the files are missing entirely. So the question remains, did Danny kill himself, or was he murdered because of what he was investigating? The police reports of the investigation are certainly not professional. Fingerprints get lost, messed up. They drain the tub without a strainer. Sloppy work. What were the towels doing underneath the sink? The police did not check them. Police have a rule in this country, and government people have a rule. When they screw up, they cover up. Sad but true. Do I think they covered up here? Yes, I do. There is enough evidence that he was murdered so that there should have been a much more intensive investigation than there has been. I don't know enough to know for sure, but all that I do know makes me believe that it was more likely that he was murdered than that he committed suicide. With that, this case remains open. But with many unanswered questions, it still remain unanswered. Please rate the show and let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I have covered. You can follow me on all major social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Dailymotion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Likes are all down in the description below. If you have a case you'd like me to have a look at and cover, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time.